Welcome to the Sanctum. Here we study the mysteries of Dungeon Crawl Classics and Appendix N. With your keepers of mysteries, Jen Brinkman, David Bainey, Bob Brinkman. Enter the Sanctum Socorro and be inspired. Welcome to the Sanctum Socorum Podcast, where we plumb the depths of Appendix N as it pertains to the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game, and we're here to help you serve these literary offerings up at your DCC RPG table. I'm Dave, and with me tonight are Bob. Hey there. And the ever-lovely Jen. Hey, guys. And tonight we are covering Steel Magic by Andre Norton. Ooh. What do you think, Bob? You want to give us a synopsis on that? Sure. A girl and her two brothers are transported back to the time of King Arthur, where they must return three magic talismans to their rightful owners or remain trapped forever in the distant past. The adventure begins when Sarah Lowry wins a picnic basket at the Fireman's Strawberry Festival. She and her brothers Greg and Eric are staying with their uncle at his Hudson Valley estate while their parents are in Japan. Fascinated by the haunting history of the old manor, they pack a picnic lunch and begin their search for the legendary Lost Lake. They discover a medieval castle, and suddenly they're enveloped by a gray mist that transports them back to the time of King Arthur. There, they are given an urgent mission to recover three lost talismans, Arthur's sword Excalibur, Merlin's ring, and the Horn of Huon, Warden of the West. Can the children fulfill their quest and save Avalon, the only place that stands between the powers of darkness and the mortal realm, and return to their own home? I think Great. so, because this is book one of a series of seven. So I'm going to say they succeed. I don't think that's a spoiler. It's a safe bet. It's a safe yeah, it's like going to see the Titanic, the ship sinks. Oh, man, Bob. <laughs> so what do you think, Jen? You know, honestly, and I'm a little ashamed to admit it, this one was a bit harder for me to get into until about two-thirds of the way through, which... It, it's kind of weird because it's more of a children's book, right? It's on that reading level, but it really reminded me of the Narnia series, down to the kids' names and the magical animals, the whole color-coded heraldry worn by the humans in Avalon that they had to start recognizing. Totally see that. Each kid ended up going to a different location and having their own little adventures, and I just kept bracing myself for the blatant preaching. Instead, <laughs> there was an easier flow to the writing, and things went in a far different direction. The shape changing was unexpected. I really liked the emphasis they put on cold iron and their own original belongings, and that unknown urging toward the quest items that they were after. I think this also kind of harkened back to our first episode with the warning to eat their own food, lest it become impossible to leave Avalon. Never eat Adderkorn in Avalon. Or in Good the Underdark. <laughs> Good safety tip. I think Adderkorn's getting a bad rap. <laughs> I'm eating it as often as I can, wherever mm -hmm. I can, you know? <laughs> mm, Adderkorn. <laughs> 
What do you think, Bob? Right off the bat, Andre Norton, she was the first woman to be a Gandalf Grandmaster of Fantasy. She was the first to be a science fiction and fantasy writers of America Grandmaster, first inducted by the Science Fiction and Fantasy Hall of Fame. As Not a bad. writer, <laughs> she's got some great cred. Then you look at her place in Appendix N. She's one of the authors mentioned only by name. There's not a single work or series or group of works that puts her on the list. She's just listed. Andre Norton. <laughs> she played D&D with Yuri Gygax. That's cool. And that inspired her novel Quag Keep, which was the first novel ever based on a role-playing game. It and its sequel both take place in Greyhawk. So she wrote the first D&D novel in the <laughs> 70s. Wow. So she's got some serious appendix end cred. And, you know, she's a good old girl from Refreesboro, Tennessee. So that makes you feel good, right, Dave? Oh, yeah, I'm all tingly. But uh, (laughs) (laughs) as for the story itself, Narnia and Oz, I think that's a fair comparison. You know, kids going into the magical world of myth. It's a fun, quick read. The writing is kind of of its time, so it has that simplistic feel to it. And so it shows a bit of age, but I think that's kind of the charm of the whole thing. It sets up a series of seven books that go from 1965 to 2008. So That's a run. Yeah, it was. It, it certainly seven did. Yeah, seven exactly. books, so what, every eight years? <laughs> no, it was like one every two years, and then a giant gap, and then 2008. <laughs> oh, okay. Matter of fact, the book you originally wanted to read, Dragon Magic, which was the third book in the series, Mm -hmm. the seventh book in the series is a sequel to Dragon Magic. Oh, jeez. So it's the whole Myth Inc. thing. Kind of, I Uh, guess. Okay. What about you, Dave? I guess when you throw bones with Gary Gygax, you just do what you want to do, right? Yeah. (laughs) Well, first off, I have a bone to pick with Andre Norton in that I think she's the original culprit for splitting the party. (laughs) I don't know. I think Ernie might be the original culprit. Yeah, but. maybe so. But um, yeah, that was the first thing I thought when the uh, children went off in their separate ways for their little individual quests. So yeah, I'm not big on the splitting the party. I don't think that was too cool. I definitely saw the shades of Narnia that you guys have already hit upon and even saw a little bit of Alice in Wonderland, just to name a few. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's just to have at least an underlying fairy tale to it. A feel, I mean. The inclusion of the Arthurian legend was, I thought that was really cool and it, it added to the story. Um, this is something that I think that if you've got kids and they're too young to read the good stuff too, or I should say the good stuff, but the, <laughs> the really graphic things that might actually give them nightmares, I think this would be a great story to read to give them a, a good introduction to the fantasy genre. I think it's tame and the creature descriptions are all, you know, it's, I didn't get scared when I was reading them, so that says a lot. Um, they're kind of they're kind of vague, which is something yes. that we see a lot in some of the writing of the period. And I think that's kind of a kid-friendly trait. Plus, all the creatures in the novel were killed by silverware. So, forks, knives, and spoons take on a different meaning, I think, after you read this to your kids. You just need to be careful that little Jimmy doesn't stab Grandma at the table the next time you guys get together for uh, dinner. Well, you know. Christmas hey. dinner just rolled a crit. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, as far as things we might stat out of this, Bob, did you come up with anything? Silly question. Yeah. You could certainly stat up some NPCs like Huon of the Horn, King Arthur Pendragon, Merlin, and we wrote Merlin up as a patron for uh, Episode One's Companion. Oh, yeah. yeah. So we've done that before. Be interesting, I think, to write him up now based on this story and then look back and see how they compare. There's the Guardian Fox 
that was like the size of a Great Dane when they came through that could spell cast and, and things of that nature. Yeah, he was creepy powerful. Mm-hmm. The Horses of the Hills, those black, bat-winged, badass Pegasi, those are just, they're he- awesome. And, you know, Pegasi, Pegasus, not in the DCC monster book to begin with, so might be a good way to have a DCC-ified creation there. Yeah. Certainly stat up Excalibur as a magic sword. Uh, Huon's Horn, which kind of reminded me of like the old Silver Horn of Valhalla from D&D. Yeah. And uh, Susan's in Narnia. Yeah, another another person. Yeah, kids with horns. Yeah. (laughs) And Merlin's Ring could be another really cool thing to uh, stat up. There's a lot that can be pulled from it, but those are the ones that leapt out at me. Yeah. That's quite the list of work cut out for you, babe. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I always stat up every single thing that strikes my fancy. <laughs> what do you have, Dave? There was an encounter. The young lady of the story was quite afraid of spiders, so she, of course, faced spiders in her little individual quest that she went on. I think there was a, a portion where she was traveling through some mushrooms, and there were mm-hmm. some spiders that were actually fungoid in nature, and I thought that was kind of creepy. And yeah. those glowing webs? Yeah. Ick. To me, that was one of the more interesting descriptions and encounters. But the spiders were actually moving around, I think, stealthily because they resembled the fungoids that they were traveling amongst. So I thought that was kind of cool. You could stat those up. That was just creepy. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Well, that's because you don't like spiders. And they hunted in packs. Uh, Yeah. yeah. Um, The silverware, of course. You could have magical forks, spoons, and knives, which might be interesting depending on where you went with that. It's kind of cool because that whole idea of the cold iron and the form it took with the children, it kind of gave me the idea of possibly taking other things that most of the time we would think of as harmless and making them deadly, you know, or dangerous to the creatures that we fight or we run up against our running in our adventures against our our players. Well, sure. I mean, if you look at mythology, like uh, garlic and roses against mm-hmm. vampires. Those are mundane, harmless things. Exactly. I don't think we use that a lot. You know, or at least I don't. When, I, when I'm doing homebrew, I don't put a lot of thought into those things. So this story was kind of cool in a way because it, it made me give a little more thought towards doing that in the future. You know, taking something that would be trivial, ground pepper or something, and, and throwing it on a, a soup creature. Soup spoon. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Weaponizing the soup spoon, yeah. The young lad, Eric, who uh, had a boat that oh, I think it was described as having scales. Yeah, it was like the ribs and skin of some giant fish. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. And, and there and again, it goes to, I think that I'm very guilty of when I'm creating encounters, you know, oh, you're in a forest. Well, I don't think about the forest. Or, or you're in a boat. Take uh, Harley Stroh's Sailors Under the Starless Sea. You know, that boat that was used was really cool. There's a lot of times that I, I think I've put things in adventures that I haven't just taken something that was mundane about the encounter and added a little bit of magic to it. So this story, I think, really kind of fortified that idea that I need to do that more often. And, you know, Good you mentioning that, I just read an article that was Gary Gygax's Seven Tips for Legendary DMing or, or oh, something cool. of the sort. And one of the things that he specifically mentioned was, since you're the eyes and the ears of the players, to do things like that. So you're in good company with that opinion, Dave. <laughs> Ta-da! Just saying. <laughs> What about you, Jen? You know, I was kind of entranced by Merlin's robes. It was described as having some symbols and and lines stitched into it, but when he was about to work some great magic, those lines illuminated with color and just surged through the robes and the cloak and moved around on it. I was like, okay, that's actually kind of cool. Maybe going back to 
was it the old D&D cartoons? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit of imagery there. I gotta say, my favorite critter or item or person to stat on this thing is the the witch that was unnamed for the author's purposes, but we could all pretty much figure that whole Morgan Le Fay thing. Yeah. yeah, the witch of the mountain. Yeah. She had the silver hair that each strand seemed to have a life of its own, and by pulling a couple of those strands and just weaving them together in her hands while muttering, she created this netting that she threw out to try to capture Greg. And he then saw the effect later of what happened to those who had been caught in the netting. And that just... Okay, the, this this is the scene that sucked me in. Okay, I, I'll, yeah. I'll keep reading this book. <laughs> That's a really DCC kind of spell, too. Yeah. Rip hair from your head, create a mesh, and then the mesh can do things like you know, turn people to stone. You don't see that coming. Honestly, I would not write it up as a spell. It would be one of her special abilities. Ooh. Really? Because nobody else can pull her hair out and use it that way. True. <laughs> True. <laughs> I, I mean... Removing hair is from patron paint. corruption. Yeah, you could do all sorts of things if you write her I up. I think she is the corruption, and she is her own patron at this point. <laughs> Saying that she is the corruption, I think, is very, very fair. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little dark, maybe, for a kid's book, but yeah. So, other than hunting down our grandparents and ripping out their gray hairs to use for uh, props, what else you got, David? And stabbing them at the table, yep. <laughs> kind of came up short on this one, you know. Some some of the stories we read, it's it's really easy to suggest props. This one's a little harder for me. I think the Horn of Huan, you could definitely pick up one of those old Viking horns that I think uh, some of them are used for drinking, if I'm not mistaken, but I'm sure they're... Maybe. I, maybe. I would know. Some Viking horns on eBay, I checked, you can get those, and that would be a nice enough prop. If that was to, to be found during a session, you know, to throw it out on the table, I think it would add some oohs and ahs to the encounter. How about forks, spoons, and knives, you know? I mean, that's something that, again, we take for granted, but if it's going to be a, a main theme or used as a main theme in a story such as this, you know, maybe you could find some use for that other than to stab each other with forks. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Why start now? Exactly. But as far as the music goes, I, I came up a little more with that, I think. A large part of the adventure took place outdoors, so of course I went digging in the Spotify library and found a collection called Sounds of the Forest, which we'll probably throw a link up to. But that really, it's not the, the typical... Most of the time when I throw tracks up as background music, they generally give you the feeling you're about to get your face eaten off. So <laughs> this wasn't altogether, you know, a foreboding collection. There's actually some... I would say, you know, this has kind of got a fairy tale like feel to it and a Narnia esque theme or the Oz. So a lot of the tracks to me would be happy strolls through the forest, you know? <laughs> which is a little different. Also the uh, the soundtrack for the two thousand five Narnia movie had some really great music. Okay. Yeah. Um and some of those tracks are kind of, you know, oh, we're getting ready to go kick some honey. Uh, tracks. So those two selections, I would say, would make a great combination if you're going to run a story or an adventure similar to this that, you know, where there was a lot of outdoor adventuring going on. Yeah, you could even intersperse them and just Hell yeah. use both of those <laughs> for one session. Well, I wasn't going to suggest using two separate devices and two separate Bluetooth speakers, which is what I often do, but if you really <laughs> want to cross the streams... You just hit random. You oh, get my God. vote if you do that at home, guys, so... <laughs> And try it. You'll like it, I promise. How about you, Jim? Okay, so going back to our October show with the suggestion of you know, the old Halloween games where you close your eyes and put your hands in a bowl oh, of grapes yeah. and 
Oh, look, they're eyeballs. So, when the characters get to an underground passage, have the players close their eyes, describe the smells and the sounds of being in a natural cavern, and then have them feel some rocks covered in leather and cloth, and say, these make up the walls. Cool. Because, honestly, that is the exact yeah. part of this book that grabbed me, because that was the effect of being caught in the witch's netting. Was effectively yeah. turned to stone, but their clothing didn't fully transform with them. That right there, that was pretty DCC weird, icky, squicky stuff, and yeah, okay, I'm in. It'd be a great scene to run in at JCPenney's. Feel this mannequin. Oh, walls are made of these. You're horrible. For the props, you know, if you have any tarnished silverware, that old stuff that's almost black, you know, the real silver, yeah, they might not look like anything, but this is all the treasure that there is to be gathered. Some people might say, eh, it's junk, and mm -hmm. walk past it. Now, Merlin's ring had been encapsulated in a hard, clear ball, I guess. So mm -hmm. if you have any of those clear plastic balls or eggs, like from the little prize machines, little yeah. toys and stuff. And if you don't have one, it'll cost you a quarter. Exactly. Throw an old gaudy costume jewelry ring into there. And you can actually order those. I don't know how, oh, God. I, yeah, that's no, right. how I know this. But you can get them on empty ones for real cheap on Amazon, so yeah. And I think the ones that weren't clear, those are what Kurt used in his Metamorphosis Alpha game. Oh, yeah! In the trash compactor scene. And for music, honestly, I've been going with a lot of classical lately, because it's kind of helped just the day go by. And I noticed the Fantasia soundtrack has a lot of oh, good, yeah. timeless, classical music, even appropriate for adventuring. Okay. Bob, how about you? You know, I had kind of left it to Dave to discuss giant forks and killer spoons because in the story, when called upon by the kids after they choose their item of iron, they get larger and you know the fork becomes a trident, the spoon is used as a paddle. So I suppose if you want, you can always go to like Goodwill. Someone is always trying to get rid of one of those gigantically, ridiculously sized wooden carvings of, a, of an eating <laughs> utensil. Yeah. I don't know what those are for. You can't cook with them. They look stupid on a wall. I really don't know what they're for. <laughs> so they must be meant for gaming props. That, that, that oh, has to be it. Good lord. <laughs> uh, other than that bit of, a, of outlandish uh, cookery, you could go with a picnic basket. They're great props. They're not expensive. They're easy to get. You don't need and a jumbo-sized one? Yeah, you don't need a jumbo-sized one. It doesn't come with a bear. Um <laughs> And you can stock it with any sort of items you want. I mean, if you want to put cool items in there for the characters to dig through and peruse, you can do that and put it out on the table with weird bits of ceramic statuary or junk jewelry or anything like that. Or if you're running an adventure more themed like this story, put in the game session basic snacks. Put in some sandwiches and wax paper, uh, a couple pieces of fruit. Because just like our first show... If you're not eating at least a little real-world food while you're in Avalon, you become trapped in Avalon and can't leave. Let them dig through most of that stuff before you do something like put out a bowl of Cheetos. <laughs> See if they end up trapping themselves. Music-wise, uh, I was kind of struck by the fairly realistic medieval feel to the story. And so I leaned in that direction. As Dave was saying, you know, some of the forest music is sort of happy moving through the forest music. Some of the early medieval music 
is kind of happy moving through the forest music. Um, <laughs> there's a group called Alba that has an album music from the Middle Ages, and it's yeah. got some really good stuff on it. And if you go to YouTube, there's music lists of early Middle Ages music or early medieval music from like 500 to 1000 AD. So you've got everything from Gregorian chants to da 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 So oh, you know, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, so you've got those things going for it. What about inspirations and reskins, Jen? Immediately, I went to Beyond the Black Gate. It's one of Harley's. Mm, good choice. Uh, you've got the caverns off the sea. You're approaching by boat, and there's an encounter with a witch that ends up transporting you to a land of legend. So, definitely some similarities there. The treacherous cob traps were another one that really came to mind. It's one of the brave halfling ones where, yeah, spiders everywhere, some of them very large, and webbing that blocks off passages at every turn. <laughs> Ick. Yeah. Now, Make it glow in the dark and you're good. Another one that really came to mind was uh, Making of the Ghost Ring. Oh, good choice. The party is sent to three different locales for quest items, and the whole thing culminates in a ring, kind of in the title there. Although, to be fair, Merlin ends up keeping his. And I think the last one I'm going to go with is Attack of the Frogs. You've got the giant amphibian in there, and the slick black ground that Sarah didn't want to walk on, because it was just so ick. And later, it was turned to fertile land when Merlin's ring was recovered. So, definitely some corruption going on there. Definitely, yeah. Gosh, you know, you think of uh, Beyond the Black Gate... Besides the things you mentioned and transportation to a land of legend, the book takes you to Avalon and Arthurian legend, which has its roots in Celtic and Christian myth. And uh, yeah, yeah, duh. Beyond the Black Gate drops you right into Celtic myth. Yeah, that's that is a really killer, killer uh, bit to reskin. Now, I thought of Dieter Zimmerman's "Not in Kansas Anymore." He, that one's fun. It, it's a fun adventure, and yeah. I think more than most. It's easy to make it a little more lighthearted based on the premise. Oh, yeah. Another adventure. It already with... is. <laughs> yeah. Well, another adventure with people getting pulled through time would be Forrest McGuire's Beyond the Silver Scream. Both are kind of set in like the mid 70s DCC player era. I think with a little bit of work, either one of them could be made to play out, you know, a little softer, a little more innocent, with a more childlike frame of mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and let's face it, the whole Colt Iron thing is something that DCC players of elves are already intimately familiar with, and that fits into things really nicely. So when you've got the characters in the story carrying polished silver weapons made by the dwarves, it sort of fits, you know, the book so, didn't have Mithril. So were all of the villains elves then, if they had that susceptibility? Well, I think Avalon, in the perspective of this book, would be a fairy realm, because they weren't okay. all elves, but, yeah. What about you, David? Uh, well, first off, you nailed it with not in Kansas anymore. And if any of you listeners are attending any conventions where you get to see Dieter and he's running that event, you definitely need to get in it because it's a lot of fun. Actually, I think we ran through it at Gen Con a year, maybe before it made oh, print. you so. got to play test it. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. As far as some of the things that kind of, I don't know, it rung true with me. I like the fairy tale aspect, so it took me back to Daniel Bishop's Prince Charming Reanimator. That adventure was really cool. One of the better third-party 
publications that I've ran and it's got a lot of that same feel to it and if you were thinking about running your children through like a, a first DCC adventure after they make it through that funnel this would be great there's like a dragon uh, one of the I think one of the coolest dragons I've ever read in any adventure Daniel came up with is a rose dragon and mm. Yeah, I really I thought that was so awesome. So with some tweaks, again, this could be ran for some youngsters if you wanted to, uh, or adults, as I ran for my party. They were all adults, not kids, just so you know. I actually thought about the Court of Chaos for some reason. Uh, Michael Curtis, his adventure, the players are initially swept away to the Court of Chaos with all the major hitters there. And there's an object that they all desire that's in the uh, planes of law. So they coerce or convince or bribe the players to take off to this goody two-shoe land, as I would call it. (laughs) I think it's an egg. They can't go get the egg themselves. So a lot of these encounters uh, in this particular adventure, they were, I almost want to say clean and crisp, if that makes sense. There wasn't a lot of evil or, you know, it it wasn't bleeding with chaos. They were actually counters that were in line with the uh, plane of law. So I I think they were really cool. And for some reason, it it kind of took me back to the book we were reading. I don't know. No, that makes sense. In some ways, this adventure is almost like the mirror image of the Court of Chaos because you've got the forces of law saying we need to get these things back. That's that's really neat. Yeah, thanks for backing me up, Bob. I appreciate it. (laughs) No, I hadn't even thought about that. That's just, that's a really, really cool bit. Yeah. That brings us to our DCC feature for the show, Glipcario's Gambit by Joe Bittman. DCC number 80.5, for those of you that are wondering. Jen, since you ran this and and, and I only suffered and and got beaten and bloodied (laughs) through it, why don't you tell our listeners? Can we not say that you suffered through an adventure, please? (laughs) Okay, my PC suffered through an adventure. I had a great time. (laughs) Okay, so going with the lighthearted kids kind of fairy tale... Atop the highest spire of Mount Taish, your patron's temple is under attack. A demonic miasma rolls down the frost-blasted peaks, leaving a vile stench and foul magics in its wake. The bloodthirsty shrieks of snow apes and the moans of the tortured dead echo from the jagged rocks above. Your patron has saved your skin more times than you can count. Now it's your turn. Bloodthirsty shrieks of snow apes. How many times do you hear that in life? I know, right? Not not nearly often enough. Awesome. So first off, mad props to Job on this one, as I've recently discovered Glipcario, as in the overlord of Lankmar. Nice. <laughs> and Mount Taish, well, Taish being the Greek goddess of fortune and luck, very well played there. And come on, the hirelings. It's the yeah. first time you get to see the little red-headed dwarf boasting about wrestling cows. Come on. <laughs> Harley has been mis—he's been misused in so many adventures, yeah. and he been loves abused, it. Abused, beaten, and killed in so many adventures, and he loves it. Yeah. Now, the, the idea here being to blend this Norton novel in with a DCC adventure, this would not be a big stretch. Mm-mm. No, I keeping in mind the player introduction to the adventure, you know, three mysterious women beckoning towards an alleyway. It'd be easy to convert this tale to fit Andre Norton's world. You could have. A simple thing like the three fates appearing in the regular world to recruit a group of children. You know, maybe they're leaving a movie theater and they're they're being beckoned towards an alleyway. Or actually, if you're running Forest, a guy's adventure, there's <laughs> three women yeah. in a van offering kids candy <laughs> too, or um, something. <laughs> recruiting the children to confront challenges that face the fates on other worlds. So you could use that conceit to travel back and forth as agents of the fates to 
the Shutter Mountains, the Purple Planet, wherever fate exists. And, and you know, one of those fates could be the witch Greg encountered. That magic in a strand of hair can't be much different than a thread given by the fates. That is very, very true. And the way she dissipates is very similar to the way the creature on the cover does. And that's not totally a spoiler, because it's likely the first time dice are rolled here. The, yeah. the big, weird, mutated thing that you see on the cover is, well... What, what about the uh, the devil cone that Job has in the adventure? Those, I think those are pretty... Align, in line with the birds in the there's a pretty nasty oh, the, bird in the encounter. Those devil can fit perfectly down to the motives. I, holy crap, those birds in in steel magic just a little almost as bad as the spiders, man. Yeah, I see. I found that more <laughs> creepy for some reason. Birds that just stare at me it creep me out more than spiders for some reason. I don't know why. Oh, because the spider's busy saying things like, "Or you could crush my wife." That's all. <laughs> <laughs> um, another way to tie in and to branch out. In the adventure, as you're ascending the mountain, there's various groups that you meet. You could yeah. have them meet the children from Steel oh, Magic, yeah. or you could have them encounter, like, Huon of the Horn, and they could go on a side quest. They could go on a full adventure before you get to the top. I mean, that's very old-school TSR. I'm yeah. running Queen of the Demon Web Pits right now, and there's entire rooms built to fit entire adventures into. Oh, jeez. And it all seems to revolve around, you know, a bunch of identical creatures. Each of the children in Steel Magic end up confronted by just packs and swarms of identical creatures. And you get a few groups of those in Glipcario's Gambit as well. So merging mm -hmm. the two, meshing them, would not be a real stretch here. Well, and face it, as you're climbing the mountain, you keep harkening back to Greg that fought the Witch of the Mountain, the unnamed witch. So you know, maybe she's one of the fates, maybe she's not, but it's easy enough to drop her there. Witch of the Mountain. Yeah. Mountain. And the whole <laughs> thing seems to be kind of a, a puzzle for the kids, and there is a very devious puzzle that you actually have to solve before continuing here but in the adventure that leads to a game-changing magic weapon oh yeah in order to get there like the kids had to realize oh i actually need to invoke the cold steel the cold iron and then it becomes your magic weapon essentially yeah that sword that you get it also has that the empathy so that could be one of the things, like, Greg is drawn toward Arthur's sword. Yeah. Toward Excalibur. Right, DCC weapons, that's one of the ways they can communicate. Right. And, you know, there were the big, huge cobwebs in the story, but I gotta say, Glipcario's... Job, this has the best gate ever. And I will yeah. say that every <laughs> chance I get. It, it is yeah. possibly more daunting and creepy than a large web stretching across an entire clearing, but... You know, okay, maybe tone that down for the kids if you're playing a kid's game. But on the other hand, maybe don't. I mean, <laughs> maybe throw something in there to kind of spook them and wonder, you know, what is it with these fates and these patrons? And honestly, the conclusion of this adventure is pretty much left up to the judge, which very much like this book because it ends with them just, oh, hey, there's the way out. And they never actually go through because they leave that for the next book. <laughs> Will but... <laughs> the children survive? Will they win? Find out next time. Will they get eaten by the gray mist? Uh, so it'd be really simple to have that party just return down the mountain and describe the appropriate changes that happen from completing the adventure. You know, 
there's greenery, the mountain's no longer frozen over, there's pleasant critters along the way, and a bustling village down below instead of that abandoned hamlet that you first saw. So, Very cool. Yeah, it, it, man, the, these, yeah, I keep interlacing my fingers while I'm talking, and it's because they, they really do mesh so well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, moving on to road crew and convention shoutouts, I want to kick that off with a shout-out to Robin Powers. He ran Hole in the Sky at Gamehole Con, and nobody, but nobody, runs a psychotic, man-eating, cackling pumpkin monster like Robin Powers. I had a great time. <laughs> if, if you folks are at an event that he is running, seek him out. You'll have, you'll have a lot of fun. You know, as a caveat, we should say, except maybe Brendan LaSalle, the guy who wrote it. You know? <laughs> maybe he didn't run Hole in the Sky for me. <laughs> me neither. Come on, Brendan, you're slacking. Uh, speaking of cool cons, we, all three of us, attended Gamehole Con, and I think it's safe to say we had a blast, right, guys? Oh, yeah. It Jen was... blew up a world with a critical success. <laughs> Shut up. And we were standing on it at the time. <laughs> Doesn't get any better than that. Um, so thanks to everyone who I think are in the area that invited us out to have some fun. Uh, Sean and Brett with Gaming and BS, you guys are awesome. And we got to hang out with one special individual, Julian. Yes, yeah. speaking Brent, of yes. Nowhere City Nights, um, we we have to give congratulations to the newly anointed Judge Jay over on Spellburn. Yay! Congratulations, Julian. So that was awesome getting to see those guys and uh, do some Nowhere City Nights. Yay! That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Some timely stuff here. The Goodman Games Holiday Adventure Kickstarter runs through December 4th. That's this uh, Sunday, if my... Yep, that's Sunday. Okay. Uh, Get the scratch-off character sheets. Holy cow. Speaking (laughs) of Twilight of the Solstice, which is the adventure, uh, Rick Hull is going to be running this on December 17th in Cincinnati at the ever-awesome Gateway Games. Hi, Todd! Hey, Todd (laughs) Bun. And there may be presents... Uh, Rick's words, not mine. And Mark Bruner, the author, will be judging the game on December 21st at Tribe Comics and Games in Austin, Texas. And I quote, until we run out of scratchers, everyone dies, or the store closes. (laughs) Pick one, guys. Not all of the above. (laughs) Gray Freeman is looking to start a DCC campaign in Berkeley, California. You can hit him up on the Google Plus DCC RPG community if you're local and looking for a game. He's looking for players. Cool. Jarrett Crater is hosting a DCC tournament on December 17th at the Greater Kansas City Area Game Day, held at Tabletop Game and Hobby in Overland Park. So if you're in the area, go see Jarrett and give him some love. And our buddy Jeff Goad is continuing the Brooklyn DCC goodness at Brooklyn Strategist. Uh, This coming Sunday, December 4th, he's running the Meat Grinder and the Meat Grinder 2 by Eldrad Wolfsbane. Both are free zine-based adventures. Cool. And Black Feather Blade on December 18th. In addition, the Appendix N Book Club will be discussing Swords and Deviltry by Fritz Leiber. Oh, man, I wish I was out there. <laughs> These guys make me jealous. You know, it makes me want to live in New York City so I can just come I know, out. I know. They I play want... DCC and they read Appendix N books. Oh, my God. I would so love to do... Wait. <laughs> Where was I? Teleporter, please. <laughs> Huge congratulations to Mike Evans on the release of Hubris. Hubris. Number one third-party product and number one DCC product on its release. Holy. Fantastic. Fantastic. And it's purdy. Yeah. yeah. Finally, a reminder that John Hirschberger, a.k.a. Taco, 
And the crew of Gong Farmers Local number 282 have made all the Gong Farmers Almanacs from 2015 and 2016 available for free download over at DriveThruRPG. Yay! Uh, if you free. haven't gone through these yet, you really need to. Uh, holidays are coming, so hey, treat yourself to some cool swag. Here we go at the end of the show, guys. We would love to see what sort of things you have created based on your own Appendix N reading. So. If you care to, submit your events or creations to us at the hub at sanctum.media, or you can always find us on the regular social media sites. So keep an eye out for our future topics, and we would love to include your material and submissions on future companions. And speaking of submissions, we have we got a great concept that we're allowed to use, the Grizzly Boar, which we recently posted. That's going into the companion. Sweet. We've got material coming for the co-creator of Axe Cop coming into the show. So uh, let's let's keep that stuff rolling in. Our next book, our next episode, will be on Tarzan. It'll be Tarzan of the Apes. Yes. Well, we hope we've inspired you. Thank you for listening. Oh, yeah. You guys, we will uh, we'll be back next year. See you then. Take care, folks. Bye, guys. Be inspired. You have been listening to the Sanctum Secorum podcast. us again next time as we explore the jungle world of Edgar Rice Burroughs with Tarzan of the Apes. The Sanctum Secorum Podcast has been a production of Sanctum Media. Copyright 2016. I'm bored. Me too. This 24th level dark elf barbarian assassin is lame. Hey, want excitement? I do. Want adventure? Yeah! Then just open up a vein and pray to the dark master. Burn some luck and roll a die. Now you're ready to listen to Spellburn. Welcome to Spellburn, a podcast about the Dungeon Crawl Classics role-playing game and old-school adventuring. Join the band and party like it's 1974. Hey guys, can I play? Sure. Check us out at Spellburn.com or wherever fine iTunes are served. Oh cool, I summoned a demon horde. Welcome to Glowburn, a podcast dedicated to the mutant crawl classics role-playing game. Podcast.glowburn.org of civil